You're listening to Anatomy of a Leader Show. If you want to be inspired, surprised, and feel like you're not alone in your struggles towards the very top, you're in the right place. My name is Maria Vorostovsky. I'm a headhunter with a nose for finding the most talented, hard to find, high potential people who transform fast growing companies. Founders, CEOs, and HR directors work with me when they feel stuck and under pressure to find the right C-suite talent. I'm on a mission to discover what makes a great leader, their skills, attitudes, what drives them, and how they deal with failure and uncertainty. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single episode. It will challenge the way you think and may even change your life. Well, Boris, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Really good to to see you and to meet you at least over technology because we met over Clubhouse. I've only been hearing you rather than seeing you. So that's a, a nice change. So you're a memory expert, neuroscientist, award-winning international keynote speaker, eight times world memory champion. The list goes on. One of your um, records is memorizing 201 names to the corresponding faces. And you did that within 15 minutes, which I'd love to talk about, um, obviously. <laughs> and you also study um, unusually good performers, particularly in memory, and you know, as well as how to improve memory for faster learning, which I think is, is so fascinating. But before we get into it, I'm just curious, is your brain completely different to all the regular people like me? <laughs> First, Maria, thank you for having me. And it turns out that the opposite is true. My brain is perfectly normal. And I'm totally <laughs> fine with it. And if I say that a few more times, I might leave it. <laughs> just kidding, of course. So I have done a number of studies myself, but also have been a participant in a number of studies in, in Germany, in, in Scotland, uh, in the Netherlands, in Japan, where people also scan my brain. And it's indeed very normal. So when we're talking about memory, I mean, let's go back to the basics and maybe I ask some very, very oversimplistic questions. I mean, if we're talking about memory, can you define what that is? <laughs> it's certainly not a simple question because it's hard to define it because people have different assumptions of what memory is. I would see memory as both the ability of our brain to encode in what way or uh, what way ever, what information is coming in. So the ability to keep information in there. But it's also seen as the information itself, the kind of the storage of information existing in your brain. So I would certainly link it as you hear as neuroscientists to our brains and combine the aspects of ability and information itself that are somewhere stored in it. And where is it? I mean, okay, it's in my head somewhere, but is there a specific place there's not. It's everywhere in our head. The ability of our brain to work depends on its ability to change itself all the time. So basically, learning and thinking are the same thing. When we think, we have activity in our brain, which leads to new connections, new um, associations formed within the brain. And basically, that's what we call learning. So there's not a single place or a specific brain region where information is stored. Yes, of course, we can do some studies where we link specific brain activity to different memory tasks. Here again, it's always spread out throughout the brain. The neuroscience of early years maybe sometimes made the mistake to have these maps where you see one red dot and then play this is where it happens. Well, it, it's not. 
<laughs> it's always the networks. And yes, some brain regions have maybe a specific focus on specific memory ability, but it's spread out through your whole brain. And why do we need memory? Memory enables us basically to live. So the brain needs to process information that's coming in through our senses. And it does so by comparing which what it experienced earlier. So we need to be able to remember not just how to move, to breathe and so on, but also on a more cognitive level, what plan to eat or not, what place to attend or avoid. These kind of things were why memory evolved. And this is why we, throughout all um, animals, throughout all living, we have that some form of information storage happens. And then in humans, of course, it evolved in a specific way also with forming language that our brain depends on language in a different way it does in, in other animals. But it shows that our brain needs memories, not just to entertain us, but basically to work. Hmm. And what's the point of improving memory? The thing is, memory evolved over time for some of the things I already mentioned, like being able to survive, right? being able to remember what you experienced. The autobiographical memory is something most people are pretty happy with. And it can be extremely good as seen in individual cases who hardly forget a day in their life, which for some might even be bothersome. But there's lots of information nowadays we work with. And this is not what our brain evolved to do. If we see that scientists yeah, kind of guess that humans exist, our kind of humans, the Homo sapiens, the modern human exists for maybe 200,000 years, they also guess humans only speak for 100,000 years. A simple language. A complex language like we use it right now is only a few ten thousands of years old. And writing came way later. And well, printing press, that's 500 years. That's kind of five human life spreads. So you can see that evolution here isn't really happening on the time scale. So our brain couldn't adapt to the way we work nowadays. But we have to, or we want to remember this kind of information, what we read, what we hear, what we listen to, but also things like numbers, codes, foreign languages. These are all things humans just, so to say, recently as a species developed to do or needed to do. And so our brain has still some trouble doing so. The interesting thing is that you can learn to do it better by basically transforming all these things that are really hard for you to remember into experiences, into something that has an image or a location, because then your brain already has a system for it. So it can be very useful to improve your ability on a wide range of cognitive tasks if you have more control over your memory. I mean, this is a space that I'm particularly fascinated with because, you know, when you're talking about people wanting to get at a high level in a particular role or a career or, you know, just general improving your well-being or, you know, being at a, a very high performer, what techniques or what, what can you, you know, how can we improve memory? What, what can we do? Um, maybe I can start with talking about a specific group of memory high performers, because they are, again, different subset of memory high performers, which are interesting to look at by themselves. But the group I mostly studied, because I used to be one of them, is people performing really well in so-called memory competitions. Memory championships only happen for like 30 years. It's somewhat interesting and maybe typical to see that already 30 years ago, they called the first ever memory competition the World Memory Championships. Actually, it just had been seven British men meeting in London, um, but apparently they had enough ego to call it the World Championships. It, uh, luckily for me, and I really enjoyed participating for many, many years, grew much bigger over time. Nowadays, it's a global sport. 
is the biggest competition happening in Asia with men and women performing equally well and records still getting improved all the time. And these competitions, well, motivated people to see how much they can actually achieve. Because what you will see there, if you ask participants, is that none of them will tell you, well, I'm just gifted and I enjoy showing my giftedness by performing here or competing here and see how gifted I am. It's absolutely not the case. All the people will tell you, well, I couldn't do any of this. Then I learned about mnemonic techniques. And yes, I trained them a lot. People who do it as a sport, certainly on the world championship level, will have trained it a lot. But they all rely on mnemonic techniques. There's no one, not a single person performing high memory sports who claims to have a gifted memory or a photographic memory. Which is, again, also a nice anecdotal evidence of photographic memory in the way some people assume it exists, does not exist. Because these competitions, now they have nice prize money to be won. You can win five, digger, five digits prize money at the biggest competitions in the world. And nine out of 10 events are visual. So if someone had a photographic memory in the sense that they could just look at the piece of numbers, piece of paper full of numbers, and then reproduce it, they would easily win. But that's not happening. Showing us that in all these tasks, and it's still a wide range of tasks. It's not just numbers, as sometimes it's claimed. We also have names and faces, which is already more applicable to daily life, but also word lists, historic figures, and um, yeah, information presented in different forms, which all have to be encoded using mnemonic techniques and usually on time. So it's always on time pressure. And then we see that people can really excel in these tasks. Maybe round the monologue up, um, giving two or three examples. In memory competitions, you will find a number of people, these are the top performers, but still by now it's quite a number of people who can memorize more than 400, some even more than 500 digits within five minutes. So a random secret of more than 500 digits can be memorized by humans within five minutes who trains in memory to do so. But you already mentioned my record memorizing names and faces, which held for many, many years, but now it has been broken. So I'm not the reigning record holder anymore, but I'm also happy to have hold the record for so long where you have by now tons of people who can memorize dozens or hundreds of names in 15 minutes to the matching faces. And what's often surprising to people when I tell it, in memory competitions, we have short to medium term that we need to remember it. So basically we memorize and directly afterwards we get to recall it. We do have long events like a marathon for numbers where you have an hour to memorize and two hours to write it down. But what's actually interesting, even though it's not tested in the competition, if you would ask people the next day, they will still remember nearly all of that. So if I memorize the list of 300 digits in five minutes, which would be really good performance for myself, even though I'm not top of the world anymore, I will know these digits typically for, for days. It's not done right away because, of course, it can make a difference between short-term memory and long-term memory. And this shows it's directly encoded in long-term memory. And by the way, it's also shown something like this uh, scientifically. I've shown it in my PhD thesis already that people memorizing digits using a memory palace and techniques to encode digits directly encodes them into long-term memory. They're not using their working memory for that as most other people would. And with regards to mnemonics, is it something that everybody can have access to? Can Absolutely. everybody do it? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, in our study, we, of course, investigated these memory athletes compared to a match control group, but we also had a number of training studies by now. In our training studies, we typically ask people to attend a workshop, which usually I offer. So they follow a workshop on mnemonic techniques with me for half a day or a day, depending on the study. In most of our studies, we then ask them to train at home 20 to 30 minutes per day for about six weeks. So yes, it's some effort, but right? it's still doable, like half an hour per day for a couple of weeks. 
And we see that people on average in tests like memorizing wordless uh, double to triple their memory performance. But that's the average. The interesting fact to answer your question is, for all those people who actually finished the training, we never ever had anyone where it didn't work at all. Everyone showed a significant improvement on their prior scores. Yes, some end up even better than tripling their scores because that's the average, and some don't achieve exactly that level. But all of them so far who completed the training actually showed improvement. To be fully honest here, as a scientist, we occasionally have people not completing the training, maybe not having shown an improvement in the first or second week, where we might not know if they would have shown the improvement if they went on. But I also investigated this, of course, to try to figure out maybe are they stopping because it's not working, and that's usually not the case. So for They're those just talking. Who, yeah, they maybe um, don't have the motivation to actually go on with this. I had a pretty strong correlation in my PhD research where I had a training study with the motivational factor. I asked them, why did you actually sign up for the study? Because it said you can get memory training for free with the memory champion, or because it actually told you you get a lot of money, well, not a lot of money, it's research, but a couple of euros paid out per hour if you train. And those who came for the money, of course, they spent the whole six weeks because they wanted to have more money and so on, I guess, side job, spending half an hour a day, getting a couple of euros, doing something at home. And all of those who did it actually had less of motivation to improve their memory at the beginning, but they all showed the improvement. So they actually came for the training. They were often showing improvements at the beginning even more than the others because they were motivated to do that. But then they were not that interested in, in money and they didn't care being controlled by scientists for daily training, so they might drop out earlier. In, mm. in uh, further studies, we could um, make sure a bit more people follow through and everyone who follows through showed improvement, usually strong improvement. So with regards to remembering very long list of things, I mean, sure, you know, one use is you know, winning a competition, for example. But, you know, some can argue, well, in the age of having Google and all information accessible to you, why even bother improving your memory in the first place? I mean, what's the point of training memory when you already have access to so much information online? Well, I have different answers to the question. I think the most basic one is that we also see a brain, a memory will only stay healthy stay healthy if it's used and challenged occasionally. And then this is a very specific way to do so. There are other ways, and I'm not claiming only memory techniques are the way to do it, but it's a really good way because you can always perform at the edge of what you're um, capable of doing. I think that's often a good idea to stay sharp. Also, I like to strengthen the fact that you need to have something in your head to come up with ideas. And we know from other studies, it's not my work, but other research institutes have shown that if, for example, students expect to be able to find back information because they won't be able to Google it again the next time, they won't remember it anymore. But then it's not in your circuits. It's not your in, not in your brain. Then you won't be able to process it further, to understand it or come up with ideas. If you memorize it, it does not mean you directly understand it, but it's not hindering understanding. Now, occasionally you have these debates with teachers who might claim, well, you say memorize it, but then it's somewhere else in your head and you don't understand it anymore. And to me, that's completely not true. Out of my own experience, but also our own research, we can show that people will understand it quicker. They have memorized it maybe first without understanding it, but then it's there and you can develop understanding based on it. So you have the control to decide what actually gets some space in your head. That's really, really yeah, that's really interesting because I remember being at school and not really remembering much of anything then. 
or thinking why is memorizing certain things was even relevant. And occasionally when I'm reading something or I'm faced with a situation and all of a sudden I get these flashbacks to those moments in school where all of a sudden I remembered the things that we were learning and all of a sudden those two things kind of started to click. So what I think you're saying is, okay, you don't necessarily, you know, if you're memorizing something, it doesn't mean you understand it, but it gives you that little bit more of a foundation for when you are exploring the subject further or another piece of information is entering your head, you have something to attach it to, and then you can start to form not only a deeper understanding, but to be able to even connect different ways for creativity, for example, or coming up with new ideas. Exactly. I think you summarized it really well. I've seen it in my own experience. I started training memory, my memory because I wanted to study well. So after finishing the German version of high school, before starting my studies at the university was when I really started to train my brain. And my great average was way, way better at university than it was at school. And it allowed me later on to do a PhD in a new field. My original studies were computer science and physics. I then went on to neuroscience and psychology with um, really great results and then getting a nice position at one of the top cognitive psychology institutes we have here in Europe, the Donners Institute in Nijmegen. So I'm pretty sure most of that or nearly all of that I could not have achieved if I hadn't trained my memory the way I did. And were you always good at remembering? I don't remember it. <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> so I know that my grandmother often told stories that I had a good memory even as a kid playing these memory related games, but this is grandmother anecdote knowledge, so I'm not really worth anything. Um, in school I was doing well, but certainly those parts where memory was most important I was actually pretty poor at, which was certainly motivational related. In school I didn't see the use of learning a foreign language and I always had very poor grades in English and then Latin is the second foreign language I had to choose. And then later on, when I had both memory techniques available and the motivation to actually use them, I realized how easy it actually is to study a language. Of course, learning vocabulary for me is way easier than, for example, pronunciation. And I won't be able to apply mnemonic technique to improve my pronunciation, but I certainly can learn new words, improving my vocabulary, and by that also the quality of language I can produce or understand. So I certainly think that you can develop a memory skill over time. In summary, my answer is, I'm pretty sure I did not excel in memory as a kid before training it, but it wasn't exactly poor either. I think I did just fine. So going back again, what prompted you? Why did you decide to, well, first of all, train in, in mnemonics and then to study it? To train it was really the final exam at school coming closer by. Until a year before I finished school, I realized, or a year before finishing school, I realized, well, I got by without much heavy studying at all. So I was maybe smart enough. We were doing just what was needed to pass all courses, but I also didn't really have good grades. So when I realized maybe the grades in the final exams suddenly start to matter and were not as relevant as before, I realized that the strategy of not learning will not be successful. And then the, um, what do you say? Yeah, then all the learning didn't really motivate me. But then I heard somewhat by chance on a TV show about mnemonic techniques. And I realized, well, this might be the help I need to actually do that better. So I bought a book and learned about the memory palace technique and applied it to school. And it helped me a bit. 
Um, it wasn't a huge win, but it already was certainly a win. So when I finished school and then knew in a couple of months I was at the university, I still felt like I'm missing a bit out on what's happening with these mnemonic techniques. I didn't fully get it yet, what you're capable of if you really train them. So I used the time um, between school and university for traveling and having fun and parties, but also for spending a bit of time every day to research memory techniques a bit more. And that's when I also came across memory sports. And then there were these tasks which are not directly useful for something, like memorizing a deck of cards, but super easy to measure. And maybe that's a bit of my nature as someone who then chose to become a scientist that I found it super fascinating. That I could learn to memorize the order of a whole shuffle deck of cards uh, within an afternoon, basically. So I already had a memory palace and you knew this technique, but then I learned another technique for the deck of cards. And within an afternoon from not being able to remember more than, I don't know, seven cards like everyone else, I could memorize the order of a whole deck of cards in like 20 minutes with a couple of mistakes. But then the next day I already could do it in 15 minutes with less mistakes. And within a week I could do it in eight minutes with no mistakes. And I was super fascinated that this is possible because I myself would never have believed if someone had told me it's possible, uh, much less that I could do it. And then I suddenly thought, well, I can do it. And then where I had read it online, the page was done quite well and quite smart because it was like you could play it on this web page. It's Memory XL, it's in German, it's a German association for memory sports. And they had this training tool. And when you then reached something like eight minutes, it would tell you, well, did you actually know that for a beginner's memory competition, five minutes is a limit. So maybe you can also reach five minutes. If you reach five minutes, it will tell you, well, you are not as good as people competing in memory. Maybe you want to give that a go. And um, the learning curve was really fascinating for me. And it was a bit like a computer game. You reach new levels and you improve yourself. And this really gave me motivation to, to go on and then actually meet other people who did the same form of training at these competitions. And then it turned out maybe I had some talent for that as well, because at these competitions, I was doing better than other beginners and quite quickly achieved quite successful positions in these first regional and the national German competitions. And then within just three years, I was yeah, participating as a member of the German national team at the World Championships. So I had turned it into a hobby. And then the second part of your question is, when I did it as a hobby parallel to my studies and also applied these techniques in my studies, it really made me curious, like, why, why it works, how it works. Like, how is this possible that as a young adult, I could suddenly use my brain in a different way and do things I was certainly not capable of before. And I tried to learn more about what's happening in your brain when it works. It might be just my scientific curiosity, but there was very little to be found. There was one bigger study from London from the early 2000s where they had investigated a couple of memory athletes, but it was basically it. So when I got the opportunity to meet some people doing neuroscience at a pretty renowned institute in Germany, the Max Planck Institute, and discuss with them how studying people with a really good memory might be interesting to science, I was yeah, very eager to do that. And then luckily with the head of the neuroimaging department, we applied for a grant that we received which funded my PhD position in the field. So to just understand a bit better why is it even possible, what's happening in your brain was my motivation to go into science. And then with a bit of luck and certainly also a good grant application, it was possible to do so. So going back to what you were saying that you were training and all of a sudden you were much better than the beginners and you just kept progressing and progressing. What do you think you were either doing differently than the others or do you think there was you know talking about a special talent like what what do you think it is mm -hmm. um i still think that the biggest factor is amount of training and motivation so i was training more than most others and if nowadays i see people who are beating me 
So I'm not on the top of the world anymore, despite having, uh, actually having kept my level, which is pretty interesting to me. I'm now 37 and not 17 anymore, but I'm still better than I ever was in these memory competition tasks. It just the sport evolved so much that what easily would have won the world championships 10 years ago now won't even make top 10 anymore. And that's a good saying, just not for me. <laughs> uh, but it shows to me that still mostly the people reach up on top who do a lot of trading, who also do a smart form of trading, not just playing memory and doing it, but also working on the mnemonic systems, maybe encoding even more information in a single image, improving their memory processes further, all these kinds of things. But still at the end, you still have a ranking. There might be people who do all these things and don't reach the total top. In our studies, of course, we try to also see within the group of memory states why there's still a variation of performance. One of the factors we found that was highly correlated with success in the memory competitions, again, all of these people use the same techniques, was a measurement of so-called processing speed. So processing speed is a super simple task. It's often done by a so-called trail mapping task. So basically, you just have a paper with the numbers 1 to 90, and you have to connect them with the line. Like, you don't have to have any IQ to be able to do that. But you time people, how fast people can do it. And it's surprisingly very highly correlated with the IQ. And also in our case, we see performance in, performance in memory competitions, how quickly people would be able to do that. And we still believe that there might be, our data on that is still a bit vague and we have to investigate it further, but there might be a training effect also from doing these memory trainings that you actually get better in that because you do make a lot of really fast associations in your head training this. You want to become faster and faster, so you also train your processing speed. But processing speed is also something that's a bit more related to talent um, in comparison with the yeah, nature and nurture is always a question. It's a bit more nature than nurture. It's certainly still both, but nature does play a bigger role. So if you are having this talent of really high processing speed, it seems to be the case that you might be able to come up with these mnemonic associations a bit faster than others. Still, and everyone is able to do that, so everyone can improve, but to perform at the highest level in the world, maybe this high speed of making these links is important. So talking about a high processing speed, well, how, how can someone know whether they have it or not, whether theirs is particularly faster than someone else's? Well, there's a number of uh, these tasks which are measuring the processing speed, and some of them you can find online um, that might be more or less reliable. You can try to see if I find... Some that are openly available and share it with you, and you could maybe post it uh, for people listening. But definitely, um, I'd love to do it, but I'm definitely not sharing my results <laughs> <laughs> unless uh, they're really yeah. excellent, of course. Yeah. But um, if you do something like trailer making test or processing speed, you will you will find those, um, and everybody can have a look. Mm. So, what you're saying is, in terms of what you think made you great at what you're, you know, at memorizing is motivation and practice. Would you say those two would be the biggest factors? Yes, I would agree with that. Mm. So going back to maybe the education system, why is it that in schools it's not really standard practice to be focusing on that? And should they be focusing more? That's a really good question. And there is different arguments for that, but I don't think anyone have evidence to prove why that is the case and how it's also developed over time. Um, let's answer the second part first, second part of the question first. I am personally pretty convinced that it should play a bigger role. I find it really weird that I never came across this in school, despite even having teachers as parents, and that most people teaching in schools are not aware of 
what's possible using these techniques. So I at least think certainly everyone should know this is possible and then make their own informed decision of using it or not. But leaving people with tasks where they still have to memorize things, even though Western education systems often claim that memorization is less and less important, um, it's just partly true. We all know students in any school form and any course still have to get stuff into their memory and not providing them with the techniques that enable you to do that much quicker seemed really weird to me. So why is it not done? Um, I have different opinions, ideas about it. I think probably the biggest one is that it's still effortful also on the teacher side. And there's a high working note on teachers in nearly all school systems, so they might not feel to have the time to prepare their material in a way um, it would help students. This might change over time. For American medical schools, there is now a company, a startup in the US, which grew substantially in the last few years, also making big money, because they nearly got all the students and medical schools as clients, who basically prepared all of these demonic images, demonic stories, for all the knowledge of medical school. And that's, of course, very high-level content, so not many people even make it into medical school, this, yeah, even less make it through. But they kind of transformed all this information that's taught at medical schools into mnemonic images and mnemonic stories and shared with people and actually have it drawn. And this seems to be highly successful. And if, if we have more of these successful examples of people providing these images, I think we will have hopefully more and more also of these examples and prepare material available for all forms of teaching and all forms of schools. So this should help teachers. But by now, this is a hurdle. There's not that much available. There's a lot of general teaching about mnemonic techniques, but not much material prepared with it already. The second part is that it's still also effortful on the learner's side. Yes, you have to do something. And we all know, certainly during puberty, that's not exactly what students love to do most. So for teachers, it seems to be easier to just repeat it a couple of times instead of doing something with them where maybe the cognitive load is higher than just listening. Which is still sad because I think if the Students, even if it's teenagers, have the experience of, well, it actually worked. I actually remembered it the first time. It might still motivate them to then keep learning more. Um, might not be true for every single individual, but I think that's one of the reasons. It's not something you will make use of by just listening and that it's somewhat passed through your head. It's something you actually have to be busy with, um, but it's worth it. I, I would certainly argue for it. No, I think I understand the point. Like you have to be an active participant. Like when you're talking about also the the motivation behind it, like you really need to be engaged to make it happen. And what advice would you give to leaders wanting to use this, um, either learning mnemonics themselves or how to apply it in business or apply it to leading others? What advice would you give? Get some basic training in it, in particular in the memory palace technique, which is also called the mess of loci. It's basically the same thing. In scientific studies, you will find the term mess of loci more often in, in teaching and trainings, the memory palace technique. Um, and then start by training it a little bit with useless information, which sometimes they don't like as advice because they want to directly use it, of course, because the time is valuable and I fully get that. I'm pretty sure that what I told you earlier, that I first trained the memorizing cards, which are useless actually helped me being able to apply the techniques on basically anything I wanted to remember. And then I think doing it every day for a couple of minutes is way better than saying once a week I'll schedule two or three hours where I train my memory. 
people have this idea because they might go once or twice a week to a fitness studio and perform some weight training or cardio, uh, and then they want to do the same thing for their brain. Uh, well, even for cardio, of course, it's true that you have to have some breaks and a few shorter sessions are better than a long one, but for your brain, it's even more the case. If you make it a habit into, um, if you make a habit out of training your memory and transforming information into images, you don't need much training, but you will directly be able to apply it. But you need an introduction to these techniques first. And then start with things and practice like names. Most leaders, most people in companies working in higher positions will meet new people all the time. And it's so worth it to remember the names, even though you might not need to remember the name to follow up with an email. But if you see them and can say their name, they will always feel more valued. It's always good for you on your reputation if you can do that. And this is something that can easily be trained. And by the way, if you do that, you have this, well, success. And in my experience, that's what I saw with leader I had in coaching or in trainings. Um, well, I, yeah, you know that I'm doing that for you know, a number of years that I combine research position with a job as a keynote speaker and, and memory trainer. And I've seen leaders of many big companies in teachings and trainings and workshops and coachings. And the success moment is really important for them. So those who have this success early on and do it a few times, well, this, of course, will motivate you. Wait, I actually remembered that. Oh, well, that's awesome. <laughs> so now I want to have more of it. So they keep working on it and then they actually make it a stall in their life. I wish now I could go back in time and teach myself earlier because I feel like, you know, mm -hmm. from everything that you're saying, that the earlier you start, the more you, well, first of all, you have more time to practice because you're just simply, you know, you know if you're doing that on a regular basis, that you just improve over time. But also you can then layer information on top of that. What advice would you give your young, younger self? <laughs> well, in terms of memory, I'm quite happy. I discovered it before becoming a student at university level. But I still want to encourage everyone. Well, we cannot travel back in time, at least uh, if you haven't figured anything out, Maria. So uh, maybe now is the best moment. Because otherwise, in 10 years, you might say, why didn't I start 10 years ago when I heard about it in the podcast and it was interesting and I still didn't do anything with it. So that would be sad. So the best time to start is now, regardless of how old you are. Um, to my own younger self, I think in terms of memory, there's not that much advice to give because I still profit from it quite a bit. I think in some of the things I just learned in recent years, I could have been more successful if I had started earlier. For example, to approach people in a different way, to also work on my people skills. I was always a bit too shy. I'm still mumbling too much, but I certainly improved my skills of public speaking and giving lectures over time. But to also work on my own personality is something I, yeah, I'm not quite successful with, but could have started earlier on. And thinking about the number one thing that you think holds people back when it comes to memory and memorizing what, what what do you think that is i'm taking a second to uh, think about it so in terms of memorizing well yeah you can guess the answer i think it's not having a good skill set not having learned memory techniques but of course memory is a bit wider and for memory i might actually say it's not thinking about it not using it with attention so the very first step and it's super simple, and still even leaders will realize they most often don't do it, is attention. Just tell yourself, well, this was interesting. I want to remember that. It sounds so stupid, but it actually has an effect on your brain. And then you can do the same thing the other direction. If you listened to a talk, maybe on your channel, Maria, and it's done. 
you can click on the next YouTube video or click on the next article or uh, already put more stuff in. But if you just spend after an hour of listening, a minute or two or three, more is not needed, to ask yourself, what did I actually just listen to? Was there maybe a sort or two that was most interesting? Your brain will be able to come up with the answer because you just listened to it. But actually doing that without noticing it in the moment will change your memory afterwards. Because we know now that there's a so-called testing effect. The Washington University in St. Louis studies that a lot. But if you just, while learning or directly after learning, if you just test yourself on what you just heard or read or studied, your brain somehow, and we still need to investigate that a bit further, but somehow marks it as important. And then while you don't attend it anymore, while memory consolidation happens, it will become part of your long-term memory instead of being sorted out. So give it some attention and also check your memory early and a bit more often than you might do will give you a huge control over your memory. And then if you like on top, add some memory techniques and you will have a big advantage over most people who don't do any of that, which is still the huge majority of mankind. So don't multitask and practice recall. Um, the first part I would say focus. You might be able to focus on different things. Um, not really multitask, we all know that the human brain is made for that but you can rapidly switch between tasks until uh, to a level it might feel like multitasking, but be careful. So um, <laughs> give it attention and decide for yourself what should get some space in your brain and what should not. Mm. And Boris, where can we learn more about you? About myself? Um, well, online is a good way. I have a few things on YouTube. I heard people enjoying my TEDx talks. Uh, at least many people clicked on it and I Quite frequently get nice messages about it, which I'm really proud of. You can actually find the whole training I gave at the MIT, also on YouTube. It's uh, basically a whole day course they filmed and with my permission put on the MIT uh, YouTube channel. But if you want to have more with me, I am available to be booked as a keynote speaker, but also a workshop of trainings, both virtually or in person. And you would find more about it at borisconrad.com. Um, Boris, as in Boris Johnson. Conrad is spelled with a K, borisconrad.com. And I'm also pretty easy to be found, for example, on LinkedIn, where we often communicate and I try to share well, new things I find in studies other people have done or from our own studies on there, as well as interesting bits and bites about memory and related topics I come across usually yeah. on LinkedIn. So let's get in contact there if you like. I'll add all of those in the show notes so that way it's easier to, to find you there. And my last question, which is something I haven't asked for a while, but one of my favorite questions, and this is more personal to you. And what seems impossible to you now, but if you could achieve it, will change the course of your life or the work that you're working on? <laughs> wow, that's of course a big question. Um, let's see. I'm still really curious about possibilities of what in simple terms is sometimes good learning analytics or also artificial intelligence for education on how we can make learning more personal, um, both in classrooms as well as in online courses. And I really think the knowledge I and other people who work in similar fields as me bring from neuroscience, together with knowledge about the actual advances in technology in artificial intelligence and machine learning, if we combine this, we are not able to do that yet. We can really have an individual learning experience on, on anything for anyone. Um, and it would have a big influence on me because it would allow me to decide even more specifically what I actually want to learn or want to keep, but also help more people in making learning a success. 
because well, that's the mission I am happy to have made my job and my passion and profession that I really want to show people that they can learn basically whatever they want and while having fun and that memory is adaptable. Then combining this with modern technology is still something I hope we will be able and actually believe it might be possible in a couple of years. But not yet now, but if there's people listening who think they might have ideas for me that we together could work on that, I would be very open because I think that there's a lot of talk about learning analytics, a lot of talk about bringing AI to education, but it's often either very technology driven and missing out on all the brain knowledge, or it's very superficial and not really going deep enough because it might help for memorizing vocabulary, but not for broader forms of learning. So one dream hope might be to really bring the field of education on a whole new level by combining these fields of cognitive research with actually pretty ancient mnemonic techniques as its topic with modern technology to really make learning individual and as optimal as possible. Well, thank you so much, Boris. Really lovely yeah. to talk to you and to get to know you a little bit better and good luck with all of the work that you're doing. And you've got a new book coming out. Yes. <laughs> <I'm happy. laughs> Which we didn't talk about, but hopefully next time. But um, thank you so much. I really appreciate your coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me and really enjoyed the talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Anatomy of a Leader show. What did you take away from today's episode? I'd love to hear your views and feedback. So head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review there. This is actually the best way for podcasts to be discovered and it will really help us out. And of course, subscribe, rate and share with a friend or on social media. And on that note, you can reach me on Instagram and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.